You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Morning, everyone. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand and an usher will distribute a Bible to you and you can actually keep it um, for your own reading pleasure. So we will be in uh, the scriptures a lot today, have many verses to share with you. Um, I have actually two intros today. Neither of them are funny, so I'll just get on with them. Um, uh, First, I, you know how the newspaper does often, they do the correction section, Uh, like correction yesterday, um, we messed up and we reported something wrong. Um, So I have a clarification section right now. So um, not necessarily corrections, but clarifications. My staff or the staff this week sat down. They're like, you keep saying things and you kind of move on and you don't explain them and then everyone's confused and people think that you're a heretic. So you should probably clear some of that up. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I should. So here we go. Uh, First, two weeks ago, during Orphan Sunday, I made a comment about how we are all adopted unless you're Jewish. Now, I want to apologize to anyone who's confused by that statement. And I thought... You know, and you might have thought that it meant God loves everyone except if you're Jewish. Now, that's quite opposite of what I mean. Um, we talked through this in Genesis chapter 12. Jews are God's chosen people, and my point was that if you're a Gentile in here and you're not Jewish, you were adopted. If you are Jewish, you don't have to be adopted because you're already part of God's family. Jesus came for the Jew first, then to the Gentile. The language of adoption in the New Testament was taken by Paul to convince the Jewish believers uh, that Gentiles were actually their brothers and sisters because Gentiles believed in faith in Jesus Christ, and because they believed in faith, they were children of Father Abraham, who was the father of faith. Now, this is a very long Bible study. I don't have time for it today, but please read Romans 8, 9, or actually 9, 10, and 11, or there's many Jewish believers in this congregation, like a lot, so talk to them. They kind of got the reference. They nodded, like, all right. Everyone else was like, well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's real. So that's what I mean by that. Clarification. Moving on. Last week, I was talking about my love for furniture. (laughs) And I was using pastoral hyperbole. Jesus used this all the time. Exaggerated to make a point. I don't buy furniture and just give it away everywhere, okay? Up and down California, if that's what you're getting. Um, But I do love furniture. But I don't go around and buy and just give it away. So, clarification there. Lastly, (laughs) these are real things. This really comes up in staff meetings. Last week, I taught through Genesis, or, uh, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. And I didn't read the verse in there towards the end of the chapter about women being silent in the church and not allowed to speak, but in submission, ask your husband at home if you don't understand something. Now, I do understand that this text is confusing. Um, when I taught on chapter 14 last week, I was teaching a sermon on the, what, the, 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 the thrust or the, the, the importance of that chapter. And so I don't have time to teach through every single verse as we're going through 1 Corinthians. But I will say this, that the text is a bit confusing. First, understand that Paul, um, that if Paul means what you think he means when you read that text, then he's in clear contradiction of himself and what he said in chapter 11 about women prophesying and praying in the church. This is a single letter. After all, Paul would not have been that dumb to teach the church how women are to be in public ministry and then say they have to be quiet in the same letter. That doesn't make any sense. Plus, most evidence Um, in the early church indicates that women were in active roles of preaching and teaching and prophesying and praying. 
And here in chapter 14, when Paul says women are to be quiet or keep quiet in the church, he is either A, addressing a specific local problem in Corinth, or he was referring to eldership in the church being the judge of rightly ordered prophecy, because the whole chapter is about prophecy. Now there's a lot of conversation around it, but I do not believe that he meant that women can't speak in church. There's more nuance than that, but other than that, I can't speak to that right now. Those are my corrections for today, the 17th of November, 2013. (laughs) So there's probably many more to come. All right, turn to chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. Now I know, I know that chapter 15 comes after chapter 14, and you're like, wait, what happened to 15? We're going to get to chapter 15 starting next week in a series, a new series about resurrection, new bodies, and heaven. It's going to be so fun. We'll end this series, or this book, or this letter, actually, at, um, by the end of the year. So next week, we'll be jumping to chapter 15. But what I want to do this morning is I think chapter 16 fits better in this series. We've been talking about how the church has a culture. And so I think chapter 16 fits better in this series. So I want to jump ahead, grab 16, pull it into this series, and talk about generosity. Now, this Sunday needs a disclaimer, actually five disclaimers. <laughs> so this is my other intro, remember? I had two, this is the other one. Um, this is not an apology, these are disclaimers. And very often, if you've been here for any length of time over the last several years, this church, when I teach on subjects that make everyone in the room uncomfortable, I'll give some disclaimers. Not to ease the tension, but to be clear about what I'm talking about so I don't have to do another clarification next week about how I messed up the disclaimers this week. So here's some disclaimers. The first one goes out to anyone in here that's new, like your very first time at this church. I know you've probably avoided church probably for months now, and today was the day you decided, fine, today's the day I'm going to church. Now, you've probably avoided church for months, and there's many reasons why you've avoided church, but one of the reasons often comes down to the way organized religion has abused power and money. And there's this thing where every time you might hear of a church, they're always talking about what they are against and very emotionally talking about how they want your money. Now, the reason why I know there's a large possibility that a lot of people are new this morning is because we are talking about money this morning. And this will be the very first time, I promise you, ask anyone who's been here, for the last three and a half years. This is the very first time in the history of this church that I'll be teaching about money. And if if you're new, you're like, I knew it. The Sunday I I come for the very first time, he's talking about money. (laughs) When we began the church almost four years ago now, I purposed in my heart not to talk about money or teach on money topically. Meaning I just grabbed a text like, I wanna talk about money today. Because I didn't want people thinking that we were here for your money. And because I didn't want anyone to think that we were abusing the money that people actually did give, from the very beginning, there's been a very high level of transparency with everything given at this church. So for further transparency in this area today, I wanna list everyone who gives and how much you give. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) If that got you nervous, that was conviction from God. (laughs) That was a joke too. I just, I get nervous, I joke, I... Actually, this is the very first time that I'm teaching on money and I don't take pride in that. I've come to learn this. I think I've wrongly avoided talking about money. And in doing so, I've missed a very important part of teaching you what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus talks about money more than he talked about most any other subject. So if you're new, 
I've done just, we just got done doing several teachings on love and gifts that God gives us for the common good. So go listen to that if you think we, all we talk about is this. The next thing I'll say is that I don't know how much anyone in this church gives besides my wife and I. I don't know who the largest donors are. I don't take the largest donors out to lunch or to dinner. The largest donor of this church could actually be giving out of their wealth and someone poor in this church can be given out of their poverty and though the monetary number might be a lot lower, the sacrifice is a lot bigger and Jesus honors the widow who gives the widow's might in scripture because she gives out of her poverty. All that to say, I don't know who gives and who does not give or how much they give or how little you give or how much you give or if you give or do not give. Tarek does and he'll be following up later. <laughs> he knows everything. So I don't. I'll also say this. <laughs> There's a lot of this. This is like the sermon, just disclaimers. I'm not teaching on giving because giving is low at this church. Giving is actually great right now at this church and the generosity that you have shown in this church is insane. And the ministries that this, that this church has supported throughout the city is so beautiful to see. So if you are giving, thank you. Thank you for giving to your local church family. And if you've given sacrificially a large sum of money and I don't know about it, thank you. God knows. So this isn't teaching on how bad you're doing. However, I would like to see us excel in giving. We do have areas of growth. We are a young church, especially as the church grows and the complexity of urban renewal and revival that God is doing in San Francisco is happening all around us grows, the need grows. So there's a follow-up letter that Paul writes to the, to the church in Corinth. We call it 2 Corinthians. And in it, he says this to Corinth. We've read first, this is what he says in 2 Corinthians. He says, but since you excel in everything, He's talking to Corinth now. You guys excel in everything. We've talked about this. You've excelled in faith and speech and knowledge in complete earnestness and in love we have kindled in you. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. You guys, what he's saying to the church in Corinth, you guys are excelling in everything. You guys have all these things that are so great in your church, but excel in giving. This is what I want for our church. And lastly, I'll say this. I've been thinking deeply about this topic ever since I knew I would have to teach on it. I mean, deeply. It's been a sermon that has been, I've been living with. I live in it before I ever teach it. I'll quote a pastor that I quoted before when we were going through a series on identity. And when, I, when we did the series on identity like two and a half years ago, um, I stood up in front of the church and said, guys, this sermon is way too lofty for me. I do not attain it. I have no idea why I'm preaching. I should be in the congregation, but this is what God has ordained. And so I'll say this and know that I've been living into this. That's this sermon today. And the, and the pastor that I quoted said this, no pastor lives up to what he preaches. If he does, he is preaching too low. And so that's me today. I've been wrecked in the best way possible about what I'm gonna say. My wife Ashley and I have had conversations. We've prayed about how we can excel in giving. We've been living into this teaching. And before we get started, this is gonna sound super, super strange, but because your family, this intimate little group here, I will confess it to you. Today, um, I just, in the back worshiping um, during first set of worship and um, singing, great set singing, and God just said, you better confess this. And so I will confess it. Um, I'm flying to Boston today to be a part of a board meeting that I'm on the board at Reality Boston. And I'll be flying, not commercially, but I'll be flying privately. And we have not paid for it. 
it was already going. We got invited. Get in the plane. We're going this way. You're already going that way. Get in and you can ride with us. So if that plane goes down, I don't want you thinking, that's right. Taught on generosity in a private jet. That's why God killed you. <laughs> so I have to confess that. I don't want the elders having to mop that mess up if I did go down, if we do go down tonight. Um, so that was, that's an honest confession, okay? So I can, I, wow, I don't know why, I just had to say that. So there you go. Um, okay. This morning, I want to talk on the theology of money, greed, and generosity. Read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses uh, 1 through 4, and then I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians in a follow-up that Paul does to the church. Now, verse 1, about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So Paul's writing to, the, to the, a church in Corinth and saying, okay, I'm about to pass through. We're going to pass through. We're going to collect the money, give it to the church in Jerusalem. They're very hard off right now because of uh, a famine going on in Jerusalem. They're poor. We have to, we have to give out of, out of generosity. Please take a collection so that when I arrive, the money's already there. I'll grab it and we'll, we'll take a, 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 a group of people with the money to the church in Jerusalem. But they didn't really get the message. They didn't really give and so Paul has to write a follow-up letter, 2 Corinthians, in chapter 8 and 9. He's saying, can you please follow through with that giving? Please. And he appeals to them with the gospel. And then he says this in chapter 9, verse 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will, be, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge your harvest of righteousness, of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. That's God's word. Let me pray. God, I thank you for this church and um, it, the generosity that's found in these seats and these souls and all these, these things that you have been able to wonderfully do through this church in this city. Thank you, God. Thank you from the very, very first Sunday this church was able to support itself. That's from you, completely from you. Thank you for the gifts of generosity that keep going out of this church, into this very school that we meet in, into the ministries and nonprofits and the people that are in need all over the city. Thank you for the generosity of this church. And I pray that you would grow us in the grace of generosity. And more than that, God, that you would teach us how to keep our hearts free from greed. Show us that now. That's the, that's the thing we want. We just don't want to be tied too much to our stuff, God. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I grew up watching a cartoon called DuckTales. Does anyone remember DuckTales? Thank you. I thought I was going to be alone. Okay. And almost every episode, Scrooge McDuck would dive into his pool of money and swim in it. If you don't remember, this is what it looked like. I, as a kid, I watched this. That was his vault of money. And then pretty much at the end of every episode, he would get in there and swim around and he would be in his happy place and he would just be swimming around. And I love that scene when I was a kid. I remember thinking it would be so cool to have so much money that you can swim in it. But the reality is, you don't swim in money, you drown in it. Money and possessions can kill the life of God in you. The Bible talks about money more than 2,000 times. The second most frequent topic and theme in scripture are socioeconomics, second only to idolatry. It's talked about, money is talked about more than prayer and faith combined in the Bible. The tone the scriptures strike when talking about money is summed up well in this proverb, and I love this proverb. It says this. The proverb says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Why? Otherwise, I might have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? I don't need God. I have everything I need. I can provide for anything, any want I have. I can buy it or it's covered. And money and wealth become false securities. Or, the writer says, I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Jesus talks about money a lot. Of Jesus' 30 parables in the New Testament, 19 of them are set in an economic or socioeconomic context. Jesus talked about money more than he talked about heaven and hell combined. And the only thing he talked about more than money was the kingdom of God. And he even used money to talk about the kingdom of God. He says something like this in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a, when a man found it, he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The reason why the scriptures talk so much and Jesus talks so much about money and possessions is that there is a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about money and how we handle money. There is a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and money. Jesus says that if you want to know where your heart is or a better vernacular for us, if you want to know where what has captured your heart Look at your treasure. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Scrooge McDuck's treasure was in that vault. And pretty much almost all the episodes of DuckTales, which is, gosh, go get the DVD set and watch them. <laughs> almost all the episodes surround people trying to take um, Scrooge's money. And then Scrooge keeps it, and at the end, he gets to swim in it, loving his little precious. Money the scriptures teach, have power. Power to capture your heart. Money has spiritual power. Money is not just an inanimate object. Money actually has a force behind it. Money has power to capture your heart. Let me explain what I mean by that. The church talks a lot about sin. And the sin that the church talks about most often when the church does talk about sin is sexual sin. So whenever I say sin, most everyone thinks it's about sexuality. But the sin, and what I mean by sin, is missing the mark of God's desire for humanity. That's what I mean by sin. 
The sin that is repeated and talked about over and over again in the scriptures is the sin of greed. That's the one that's talked about the most. You can say it was the original sin, the sin of wanting more. Adam and Eve in the garden with everything they needed and only one thing they couldn't have. And that's what they wanted. And that's what they went after. Greed decays the human heart more subtly and will destroy it more thoroughly than any other sin. Greed decays the human heart more subtly and will destroy it more thoroughly than any other sin. Jesus says, beware of the sin of greed. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Why? And this, this next statement should like seriously be put somewhere so you can read it often, maybe in your wallet. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. It's interesting that we are told to beware of, of greed, but we're not told to beware of things like sexual sin. We're told to flee from sexual sin. It's like we know when we're about to enter into sexual sin. No one just all of a sudden like, oh my gosh, what am I doing right now? I mean, you know when you're going into it. If you don't, there's a whole different set of problems that you have that we need to address. <laughs> we know when sexual sin is gonna happen, but we do not know when greed is gonna happen. Greed is subtle. We have to watch out for it because before you know it, you could be living a year of your life, your first year of your career, and you can be greedy and not even know it and pass it off as being, well, I'm just being careful. I'm just enjoying life. Greed or the love of money and possessions is a subtle killer. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter six, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He says this, you cannot serve both God and money. Or your translation might say mammon. Mammon is the Greek God of money, riches, and possessions. And for a lot of your translations in your Bible, that word mammon is preserved because it's a personification of a God. He's not saying serve both God and a dollar bill. He's saying serve both God and this, this spiritual thing of money. And you can't serve them both. There's, uh, there's other masters that we can have in our lives that, that actually help us and propel us towards Christ. Our jobs can actually propel us towards Christ. But there's something about money, there's something about possessions and acquiring this that are at, at odds with Christ. We are told to submit to our government and our government can push us towards loving Christ more. Often, that is the case, but not with possessions and mammon and money. It is opposite, completely opposite of God. One theologian says this, mammon means possessions or property. Today we might legitimately translate mammon as things, money, gain, or success. The god mammon is left with its pagan name in the Greek text and in most translations in order to remind readers that mammon is a spiritual force who works with tremendous attracting power to draw us into its orbit and from out, under the, out of under the, from the service of Christ. It's drawing us away. He says, don't let us get into this temptation. We cannot serve both God and making it. That's his translation of mammon, making it. You cannot serve both God and I just wanna make it. Notice that Jesus doesn't say you shouldn't try to serve both God and money. Hey, it's not a good idea. Don't try to serve both God and money. It's, it's, it's gonna be really hard. He doesn't say don't try 
or you shouldn't try or don't try because it's difficult to keep them balanced. Jesus says it's impossible to serve both. You cannot serve both God and mammon. If you serve one, you will turn your back on the other. When you start pursuing money, when you start pursuing success and building a name for yourselves or possessions, you are turning your back on God. See, in the scriptures, material possessions are one of the primary means of turning human hearts away from God. Material possessions in scripture, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is one of the most richest people who've ever lived. He talks again and again and again about how money turned his heart from God. Material possessions are one of the many primary means of turning human hearts away from God. For Jesus, mammon was God's rival. First Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now a lot of people mistranslate this. People say money is the root of all kinds of evil. All evil. No, it's all kinds of evil. All kinds of evil have behind it a love for money. And Paul says, some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Some people have been following Jesus in their, just getting by with their daily bread and then come into a large sum of money and they have wandered from the faith and it has pierced them with many griefs. This happens over and over and over again. Now, Jesus does not say that you can't have money. Let's make that clear. There are people all over the scriptures with a lot of wealth. Jesus just says you can't serve both God and money. That little word serve is the key. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot let money, and this is what it means by serve. You cannot let money and possessions and wealth and property be your master. You can't let money possessions, wealth, and the accumulation of all the success in the world be the basis of your decision making. If that is the case, if you're making decisions based on money or success or accumulation of possessions, you are serving mammon. But when the decision is based on faith in God and what God is calling you to do, then you're serving God. So confession number two. I'll confess to you as a pastor, I am not the model Christian for this. I can't stand up here and say that my wife and I give away 30 or 50% of our income away. I wanna say that. Lord willing, my wife and I will be able to say that one day. We're working toward that. To be honest, completely transparent, we're still at that 10% mark, which is the floor and not the ceiling of giving. And we give our money to the local church, this church. And when I say I, that's where I'm at, I say that like I wanna be, we're, my wife and I just got done with a whole round of fundraising dinners for nonprofits in the city. And at the end, our favorite part of the night was filling out the card and giving offerings above and beyond to these charities. And I, we were sitting there, and I kept on turning to Ash with every single dinner we were at. It's like, I wish we, were, we, we had a ton of money to give away. I would love just to write a $10,000 check to this organization. I would love just to, get, just to give an offering. Now, when it comes to this, I'll be honest, I can't use my life as an example in this area. Not yet. 
in the next 10 years of ministry, I promise to have more stories, but I only have one. I can, I can share one example about making decisions serving mammon, serving God, not mammon. When I was 26 years old, Ash and I owned a home. We had a great start on a retirement fund at 26, whatever that means. We had good possessions and a decent, and de- decent success in our hometown. And then God called us to start this church. And it meant selling the house and cashing in everything, our retirement, our savings, everything to make it. If I made my decision based on mammon, I would never had left. Like we're set here, we own a house here. We have everything we need here. Cashing in everything to start something that had a very high risk of failure would have been dumb. But we made our decision based on faith in God because God was calling us. It was a decision based on faith not on mammon, faith in God. And my wife yesterday and I, uh, my wife and I yesterday, sorry, that didn't make any sense. (laughs) My wife and I yesterday were driving um, all over the city, running errands, uh, listening to 90s R&B on Spotify. And, um, (laughs) And several times we had this thought as we're just driving around that God has been so generous to us. So extremely generous. Church, you have been generous to us. See, the only way of letting possessions and money not be your master is by letting your money and your possessions serve you, you not serve them. And how do you do that? What does that look like? What does that mean? When you use your money or the money you have and the possessions you have how, does those, how do those things go into the service, your service in the service of God? This is how. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up. Now, like I told you before, they didn't really do a good job at this. So he writes again. He says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, in all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. For the follower of Jesus, a tithe is not a rule. So when I just told you, hey, we're at 10%, we're not like, that's not like, a, that's not like the rule. We, we know, my wife and I know, we're, we're not putting this on anyone else in this church. So don't, please don't think that I'm putting this on you. I'm being transparent. God has called us to generosity. The rule in the New Testament is not the tithe, it's generosity. The rule in the New Testament is not the tithe, it's generosity. Paul says that each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. This is what this means. Your giving should be based on what you make. Some of you in here can't give 10%. Some of you in this church can't give 10%. To do 10% would mean you couldn't eat for a week. I'm not not talking about eating at your favorite restaurant. I'm like plain out, plain eating. You couldn't eat if you gave 10%. But there are many of us in here where 10% is a breeze and you're not simply allowed to give 10% and think you're hitting your spiritual quota. Here's a problem with looking at the tithe principle. 
we think that 10% is God's and 90% is mine. That's the problem with the tithe. It's like if I give 10%, then that's God's and I get 90, that's actually a good deal. But that's not what scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that 100% of your money is God's. 100%. And what you are, listen, this is so important, and what you are is a steward. Meaning you are a money manager. God has entrusted to you 100% of what you make. It's not yours and you didn't earn it. And for those of you who think you did earn your money, if you think you earned it, you earned it like this. You earned it on borrowed air in your lungs and a borrowed brain that God gave you and hands that God fashioned for you and eyes that God placed in your head. And you happen to be born and live in a time and in a place where what you do is worth something monetarily. You work on computers. Good thing you live in a time where there's such thing as computers. <laughs> exactly. All that to say, you didn't earn it. It was given to you. Your skills were given to you. The very breath in your lungs was given to you. It's all God's. All of it is. One writer says this about being a steward of God's resources. A steward manages assets for the owner's benefit. The steward carries no sense of entitlement to the assets he manages. It is his job to find out what the owner wants done with his assets, then carry out his will. And so you get 100% of what God, what God gives you, and you take that 100% of what God gives you and go, God, you've entrusted me with this money, with these possessions. What do you want me to do with it? I know this is so uncomfortable. I'm actually getting kind of hot up here. <laughs> the tithe principle gets you thinking that it's your money and you're just giving some back to God to appease him. The New Testament teaches that it's all God's money and it's been entrusted to us and we have to be generous with it. In the Old Testament, we see a lot of wealth in the people of God. A lot of wealth. When God blessed someone in the Old Testament, they had family and possessions and a lot of money. Why did God do that? Why did God bless people and give them a lot of stuff in the Old Testament? Here's why. Genesis chapter 12. And the Lord said to Abram, who he would rename Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and, I, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. Here's why. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. The principle of people who have a lot of stuff, the people that God blesses with money and resources, God blesses you so that you will be a blessing. God blesses you so that money can go through you, so stuff can go through you. If you have a great job in San Francisco right now and you are riding the wave of prosperity in this city, it's not simply for you. It's not because you've worked really hard to get where you are. It's so that you can be a blessing. God has blessed you to bless the world. Generosity is the call for the followers of Jesus. And Paul says that Christ has out of his riches became poor so that you can become rich. And it's out of our riches that we become poor so that other people can be blessed. That is, that is the point 
That is the point of generosity. 18th century theologian named John Wesley said this, money never stays with me. It would burn me if it did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest it should find its way into my heart. Generosity is a spiritual discipline for the believer to keep money and possessions from getting too deeply into their heart. Generosity is a way you spiritually discipline yourself so that you don't grab on too tightly to this world. So you could discipline yourself to grab on too tightly to the things that you think are yours. And the motivation for this, Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, the motivation for our generosity is the generosity that Christ has shown to us. Paul says, excel in everything. Since you excel in everything, since you excel in faith and in speech and in knowledge, in complete earnestness and love we have kindled for you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want you to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. He's like, show your love. Do you love God's church? Well, show it. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he has become poor, so that through you his poverty might, you might become rich. Now, let me stop there. For some, that means, okay, Christ was poor, I am now get become rich. There's a show on some network called Preachers of LA, and it's like their thing. I, okay, I won't say more than that. Um, <laughs> and there's a theology that says, well, he's poor, I'm rich. No, the whole point is this, that you follow the same pattern of Jesus, that if you're rich, you would become poor so that other people can become rich. And then they would use their riches to become poor so other people would become rich. And then by that, through the church, God spreads around all his money. That's the point. So here's a question that you and I can meditate on right now. That's the whole point of this verse. Can we live on less so that others might live or have more? Can we live on less so that others might have more? This is the way of Jesus. Jesus gave up his riches to become poor for us. The pattern of a follower of Jesus is to give to where we live off less so that others can have more. Can you imagine if this church excelled in giving and in giving into the city? We showed our love to San Francisco through our generosity. One of the signs of life for a follower of Jesus, one of the ways that you know or we know, we see in scripture that the grace of God has taken residence in someone's heart and has been redeemed and transformed by God's grace is by you showing generosity. That's one of the, 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 the ways of transformation. Jesus had dinner with a rich man named Zacchaeus. And during the course of the meal, something changed in Zacchaeus' heart. And at the end, here's what happened. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. You have been converted. How do I know that? Because your entire life has been converted. 
Your heart has been converted. Your mind has been converted. Your soul has been converted. And your wallet has been converted. It's all God's now. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. He has come to save your soul and our bodies and our minds and our hearts and yes, even our wallets. Maybe generosity for you needs to be a discipline. So what I want you to do, if you can with me, is get percentages out of your mind. Get 10% out of your mind, 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever. Get that out of your mind. And what I want you to start to do this morning is to go, I'm gonna start a, if, I, if I'm not, I wanna start a discipline of generosity. Now there's some people who use the God loves a cheerful giver and don't give under compulsion as a reason not to give. You're like, well, I'm, I'm kinda mad right now, I'm not gonna give. <laughs> and I feel like this is a sermon, you're trying to make me I feel guilty right now, I'm, gonna give, I'm not gonna give that way. But what, this is how I want you to think about it. Again, I told you at the very beginning, the church is doing fine. We're not saying, hey, a plea, the end of the year plea, we're fine. We're fine. This is a spiritual discipline. Just because you can't give cheerfully doesn't mean you shouldn't give. It might mean that you give and you request joy from God. It might mean that you, you open your hands and go, God, I'm gonna give. And then what I want, God, is I, I want that joy that comes from generosity. And that's what I'm gonna request from you today. I'm gonna request joy. What I want to do as we close is I want to read this prayer slowly. And I want you to see it. I want you to make it your prayer as we move into responding to God's generosity for us and turning from mammon, the mammon God, to the living God. And this is the prayer. Don't repeat it back. Just meditate. I'm going to read it slowly. Look at it. Meditate on it. And I'll close this in prayer and we'll respond. Here's the prayer. Settle. No moving around. Here's the prayer. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We bring nothing into this world. And we take nothing out of it. We who call Jesus Lord devote ourselves to resisting greed which plunges the heart, the human heart, into ruin and pierces it with many griefs. We are determined to practice generosity with free hearts, fixing our hope on God and not the uncertainty of wealth. We desire to be rich in good deeds and willing to share all that we have, laying up for ourselves treasure that will not decay, but will shine in the age to come. God, I thank you. Thank you for the patience and the attention of this church. Lord, I repent for being so afraid of this topic over the last three and a half years. I pray that we would not be driven by guilt 
this morning. God, I pray that if anyone feels guilty or worldly sorrow or feels bad, that you would remove that from them. We know that that doesn't accomplish anything pertaining to real life. But godly sorrow leads to repentance that leads to salvation. And so, Lord, if it's godly sorrow we feel today, I pray that we would repent. God, together we reject the lie that we are consumers. We reject the lie, Jesus, that we are American consumers and believe that which is true, that we are stewards, God. And Lord, we want to be good stewards of what you have entrusted to us. We want to be generous because, Christ, you have been so generous with us. And God, I pass no judgment on any of my brothers and sisters. I know you're after my own heart. We worship you this morning with open hands. In Jesus' name, amen.